Hello. The following is a recording from The Way, Discovering and Living the Catholic Faith at St. Peter Catholic Church. The topic that was covered this evening was why we believe in the Bible and are not Bible alone as Catholics. We hope you enjoy, and God bless. Welcome to class tonight, everybody. I'm going to open with prayer. I hope you're ready. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful day. Uh, it turned out nice and warm and sunny, and we're reminded of the goodness of creation when we look out on it, and, um, and we're we're, uh, we're blessed because of, of that reminder. Thank you so much for this opportunity to come together as friends and think through a few things together, look at a few of your texts and your sacred word together. We pray that you'll give us minds and hearts that are united and help us to be alert and um, undistracted from all the crazy distractions of the day. Help us to focus well together so that we can catch you on the right wavelength. We ask in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, Marshall! And Mom and Dad. First string, second string. Just kidding. I started with a picture. Uh, so maybe some of you know about the Emmaus Road story. It's near and dear to our hearts, dads and mine, because... Uh, we, we, we call our Institute for Biblical Studies the Emmaus Institute. And this is a scene, one of many renditions of the walk to Emmaus from Jerusalem that Jesus takes on resurrection morning, Easter Sunday morning. First thing he does, he gets up from the grave and he takes a walk. You and I, we go to Mass, we go home, we turn the football game, have a bunch of lamb and fall asleep, right? <laughs> Not Jesus. <laughs> He takes a big, long, seven-mile walk one way and then takes it again back the other way. And I like this one. It's, it's maybe not the best rendition. It's definitely not classical art. It's more of a Thomas Kincaid kind of, if anybody know Thomas mm-hmm. Kincaid. It's a little kitschy, you know, a little lowbrow. But I like it because Jesus is gesturing. He's pointing. And we're going to use that word tonight a couple of times. Jesus gesturing, directing attention to is all I mean by that. And I'd like to begin with that passage uh, from Luke 24 that I've got in light gray there. Kind of small font, sorry about that. I needed to squeeze it so I could get the paragraphs to break right across the pages. I'm a little anal, <laughs> retentive like that. Kind of nerdy. So let's read the text together. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. You don't have to read along with me, I'll just read it out loud. But um, I have that in bold because that's code language for... The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, sometimes just the law or Moses, because he's sort of the attributed author of the law, the first five books, and all the prophets, so all the rest of the New Testament, which is largely written by uh, prophetic hands or scribes of the prophets. So beginning with the Old Testament, in other words, which they didn't call Old Testament back then because there was no New Testament. And the Old Testament wasn't even old enough to be called old, you might say. (laughs) It was the fresh news. So they just called it the scriptures, or Moses and the prophets, or the law and the prophets. So beginning with what we call the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
And then he said to them, and this is skipping quite a few verses, so kind of going back to that theme. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, there it is again, and the prophets, and now he adds a third just in case there's any unclarity, and the Psalms, so the third section of the Old Testament. These all must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written. In those scriptures, mind you, in the Old Testament, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's really specific. I mean, have any of you read that in the Old Testament? We read that in the Gospels. Send you on a treasure hunt. Where can you find those kinds of statements in the Old Testament? I'm sure you can tell us. Well, (laughs) and that carrying on. (laughs) Nice one. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So yeah, really specific kinds of things. So I start there because our first question for this evening is this evening has mainly two parts. To answer two questions, why do we believe in the Bible as Catholics? And as Catholics to sort of differentiating ourselves from non-Catholics, why we don't believe in the Bible alone on its own? We're not, uh, as non-Catholics would sometimes say, and maybe you've heard this language of sola scriptura, Mm -hmm. scripture alone, it's a Latin phrase, scripture alone or scripture solo. Why we're not that way. So that's the second part of the evening. So first off, why we believe in the Bible. It really comes down to whether or not we believe in Jesus and are willing to follow the direction of his gesturing which he does toward the scriptures. He gestures toward the scriptures, as we see in the text above that we just read through together. He's gesturing toward the Old Testament scriptures as a reliable revelation of him. So if we believe in Jesus, if we trust Jesus as an authority, then we'll be motivated to believe that the Old Testament scriptures in particular, and of course, obviously now the New Testament as well, are reliable witnesses, reliable texts that help us uh, on our way, on our faith journey. And that would be why we believe in the Bible. But that backs the question up, really, doesn't it? Why believe in Jesus in the first place? And here's a a trite Trent horn. (laughs) Trent's a little trite every now and then. He's a little punchy. But he makes a good point. The main reason Trent believes in the Bible is because Jesus believed in the Bible. If a guy can walk out of his own tomb, then I trust his judgment. That's a pretty impressive resume all on its own, right? (laughs) Pretty straightforward. Let's break it down just a little bit, though. In apologetics, and I don't want to say words tonight that are confusing, and so I'm going to define most of them, and if I don't and you need to define, please flag me down and I'll define it, okay? So by apologetics, we mean the science of providing and analyzing, or you know, studying and, and, uh, and figuring out defenses of one's faith position. So why do you believe what you believe? What you say next is your apologetic, okay? In that science of apologetics, Jesus' resurrection is what we call a motive of credibility. And so Trent just talked about Jesus' resurrection. If he can, resur- if he can be resurrected, if he can walk out of his own tomb, then that motivates our belief in him. That's pretty impressive, right? That's called a motive of credibility. 
and let's define what we mean by motives of credibility. So page two. I've got three separate quotes, same guy, Brother Hillary. A motive of credibility, or motives of credibility, are sure signs by which revealed religion is made evidently believable. That means it's credible enough to motivate my belief, right? We think of a credible witness as someone who's believable and an incredible or incredulous. You know, we're incredulous towards somebody who's not very credible. Uh, I don't know if I can trust that guy. So credibility versus incredibility. So sure signs by which revealed religion is made believable by divine faith. We call them signs because by them is manifested, that means made plain or made visible, the divine origin of revealed religion. This isn't math or science necessarily, it's, uh, although they intersect sometimes. It's not uh, geometry or engineering or whatever. You know, it's, it's, it's a divine thing, and so we want to understand the divine origin of this divine faith that we say we believe. We call them motives because it is on account of them that one judges that revealed religion is believable by divine faith. And I like his definition, but I like to use the word a little bit. In other words, it's on account of these signs that we're motivated to believe. Okay? Divine faith is different from human faith. In our daily lives, we accept many things by human faith on the authority of some human person, such as facts of history from the historian, the advice of physicians, He's a doctor. I can probably trust his analysis, presuming he's not, you know, malicious or horribly researched or faking being a doctor, right? But we accept and believe the mysteries of our holy religion by divine faith, that is, on the authority of God himself. This thought leads us to distinguish between the motive of faith, which is the authority of God's revealing, or the reason why we believe a particular revelation on the one hand, and the motives of credibility on the other, by which we're convinced that it really was God who made a revelation concerning a certain truth. The latter, these motives of credibility, have to go before the former. So they have to come first, okay? You gotta have the motives of credibility in place first before you have the motive of faith. So if we have those motives of credibility, I'm gonna use an analogy here in a minute, a good example that'll help us if we're muddy, okay? So let me just finish this quote. Having the motives of credibility in place, we say, hey, these truths are believable. Thus, we're motivated to have faith because they are confirmed, confirmed by credible signs which show us that they are proposed on the authority of God. So here's, here's an example. You're talking to a doctor someone you think is a doctor, and he gives you an analysis of what's going on with your body. And you think, I can trust this guy. He knows what he's talking about because he's a doctor. But then you got to back up and say, wait a minute, how do I know he's a doctor? So in the first case, I can trust this guy, he's a doctor, I can trust his analysis, what he's given me, what he's selling me about what's going on with me. That's the motive of faith. I can have faith in his statements. Okay? But I need to back up one step and say, well, 
I, I need some motives of credibility to say that he's a credible witness to what he's saying in the first place. How do I even know he's a doctor? And I might look around for the, uh, the, uh, the, the diploma on the wall, or I might ask some other people in the office, hey, is this guy for real? Is he, did he pass his, his, uh, his boards? You know, is he really certified? And all these different ways of me finding out, yes, he really is a doctor. Those are motives of credibility. So I find him a credible witness. And once I do that, then I can go back to step two and say, okay, then I can trust what he's telling me. See how that goes? Step one, step two. Here are some examples of motives of credibility with regard specifically to Jesus. That, that is, motives of credibility that make it credible for me, for you, for all of us, to believe that God exists and that Jesus is the revelation of God in the flesh. Okay? His own resurrection, to start off, witnessed and documented by many, denied by no extant historical source, no person at that time, denied. No written source, denied. We don't have records uh, yeah, of, that, of, of any denials. We have people now who are calling into the question, but nobody at that time. And we have lots of credible witnesses that say, oh, he indeed did, was raised from the dead. The numerous other resurrections which took place upon Jesus' own death is another example of a motive of credibility. So when you read in Matthew 27, as Jesus cried out during his passion with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is bizarre, but it's history. We talk about the Bible sometimes not being a science book or not being a history book, but sometimes it says things that intersect with the discipline of science, and sometimes it says things that are historical. And here's one example of the second category. The Bible does do history, even though it's doing more than that. It's giving us a theology of what's going on, the divine perspective. But, so it's doing more than history, but it's at least telling us historical truths. And here's one, that, and it's bizarre, <laughs> that when Jesus died, something so significant happened that it upended the natural order of things, and dead bodies came to life and walked out, and they appeared to many. So the, the author of Matthew, whether it's Matthew or some other author, um, big debate in the academy, doesn't matter, but uh, is saying to us, hey, um, <coughs> this is verifiable and was at the time, and I want you to believe it. I'm telling it plainly to you. Or raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11, or the widow's son in Luke 7, or Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. And so let's look at John 11, because that kind of intersects with this whole motives of credibility through signs that make people want to believe. So here's the story. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, everyone will be motivated to believe from the many signs. These are motives of credibility. He looks very credible because of his signs, and people are being motivated to believe, and that's bothersome to us. So here are the opposition, right? These aren't just fans 
cheering and saying, see, these are the people most likely to tell a different story, but they're actually telling the same story. They're saying the same thing. Numerous other miracles throughout the Gospels, more motives of credibility, like demonstrating his power and authority over the created order by calming the wind and stilling the sea, or the very fact of his being perceived both by the credulous, people willing to believe, and by his opposition, say the incredulous, as unique, different from everybody else. And I've got five examples here. In Luke 2, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. This is when he's 12 years old. And, he was, and, uh, and asking, he was asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This isn't normal. <laughs> this is another reason to think there's something special about this Jesus character, this historical Jesus of Nazareth. He's different. Even at age 12, he's, dis- he's on the honor roll. He's distinguishing himself mightily among people who are experts in the area where he's holding court, right? Or in Matthew 7, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as all the rest of the journalists, (laughs) right? Or in Mark 1, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. This is kind of a redo of Matthew. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. So this is a, this is a pagan, okay? This is a non, he's a Gentile. He's not in the covenant people. He's not part of the club. He enters and appeals to him, to Jesus. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Sounds a lot like what we say at Mass, doesn't it? That's where it comes from, right here in Matthew. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And if you know the rest of the story, Jesus compliments this pagan dude. Wow, there's not one like you in the entire area who has such great faith. Your daughter is, or your servant is healed, heals, heals the servant on the spot. As a pagan who has believed because why? Because he's seen all the motives of credibility. And this for us then is a motive of credibility. When we read this historical account, it's for us today in 2022 a motive of credibility. Because here's a, somebody on the outside seeing the truth. And that motivates us to believe. And then finally, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, so this is the day of the the passion, and what took place, they were filled with awe. And these pagan folks said, truly this was the Son of God. So we're reading about an event that for them was a motive of credibility. When we read that, that becomes for us, that account becomes for us a motive of credibility. Right? So we can believe that Jesus was God, was the revelation of God in the flesh. Jesus also gestures, here's where it answer, starts to answer our question. So why do we believe in the Bible? Well, we've established that Jesus was a credible authority on the basis of his divinity. It looks very much likely that he was divine. And on that basis, if we've established to a reasonable degree that Jesus is divine, then at that point, we can trust his recommendation that we go, 
here or here or elsewhere, namely here, to learn about him and that these are reliable witnesses. Okay, so having established Jesus' trustworthiness, then if he gestures toward the scriptures, we can trust them. He gestures towards his apostles and his disciples as well as reliable bearers of his authority. Uh, and all these texts, these, these uh, scripture passages, I hope, I don't know if I've italicized anything yet. I don't think I have, but I do down through here. They're all mine. There are no italics in your biblical text. Uh, just to alert you to the gesture as it takes place. So in Matthew 16, I tell you, he's talking to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you, Peter, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, Peter, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he's endowing Peter with authority, his authority, right? And then he does the same to the disciples in two chapters later. Truly I say to you, plural, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Or in Luke 22, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, the apostles with him in the upper room, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. You do this in remembrance of me. That's the moment that the Last Supper became a sacrament, where Jesus actually gives them a command. See what, see what I'm doing? I am now authorizing you to do this very same thing. So if it's truly the case that I have performed a miracle here, transforming, transubstantiating this bread and wine into my body and blood for your nourishment, then when I give you the authority to do the same thing, that means that whenever you celebrate this, in memory of me, that is, in the way that I did it, as you saw here tonight, you too will be performing a miracle just as I did, and bread and wine become body and blood. And then Luke 10, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. In other words, you speak with my words, my authority. You are me to them, in a sense. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Matthew 28, Jesus came to them, came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and... I added a word here, but in the Greek, it's not adding a word because the, gr the grammatical form of make disciples is one subject, the speaker, Jesus, speaking in the second person to his audience. So he is saying, you make disciples. He's giving them a command of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here is Jesus transmitting his own authority. We've already established that we have good reason to understand him as the revelation of God. And now we have good reason to understand that the disciples themselves bear the same weighty authority, right? If they should write texts like the scriptures and 
put them in a bound book for us, as somebody does anyway, then we have reason, good reason, to take these as authoritative texts. So we're answering the question, why do we believe in the Bible? Step by step. Right? Last paragraph, letter E. And I guess it's really just a repeat of what I just said, maybe in better words. If some of them, these apostles and disciples, produce written instruction and also ordain, that is, they authorize others to speak and act also with the same authority that they received from Christ, and those others decide to consolidate, just put together those writings and canonize them, making them into one uh, holy canon, one holy collection, to accompany the other scriptures, namely the Old Testament, which Jesus already explained, reveals, I should have reveals, reveal him in a, in a unique way, then all of this happens by extension according to Jesus' authority, which is from the Father. So why do we believe in the Bible? Because step by step, we can trace it back to Jesus' own authority. And we can trace, and we can say that Jesus' authority itself is divine and not merely human. And we can provide motives for believing that. So we can connect all the dots in a reasonable way. It's not quite a mathematical proof, but it is good reason. Why we don't believe in the Bible alone. Maybe I'll just pause right there and say, are there any questions or fuzzies that I can clear up? So far, so good? Yeah, Father Worth. Throwing the Holy Spirit to just the divine inspiration with human inspiration of the four Gospels too. So it's not just... Father and Son, Spirit. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I think we understand that, but it just shows that all three persons are actively involved. Yes, I appreciate that. Yeah, and I probably, I could have done a better job of connecting that dot. So after Jesus ascends, so nothing's been written of the New Testament by the time that Jesus ascends. That happens later. He's given them the authority, these apostles, um, and, and Paul, who is untimely born, say. He was kind of the last of the, of the crew. But it's through the Holy Spirit that Jesus inspires them to write down what they write down. So I know the Holy Spirit in a certain sense because he's gesturing to this authority in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. You could have an oral canonization of these scriptures if it wasn't a written down. That's the beauty. It's both and. Then the Spirit comes to give us the written Yes. Grace. Yeah, and he and I should have I should have included the passage that says uh, just prior to his ascension, I have many more things to say to you, but the suitcase is too big and too heavy right now. So I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and He's going to help you open it and unpack it. Right. So I've given you the suitcase, but there's no way you can. So the Holy Spirit's coming, and He'll help you unpack it. And that's what the church has been doing ever since. Yeah. So thank you for that. I, in fact, when I if I ever do this talk again, I'll make sure that I include a little section. We're Bible people. And in one sense, we're people of the book. But we're not only people of the book. Christianity is not a religion only of the book. It is a religion of the book, but it's more than this. Whatever else it is, it's that. But it's more than that. So we're not Bible alone. Here's a couple of three examples of the alternative position the Bible alone, sola scriptura. So I have Ellen Gould Harmon, who's quoted to have said, the words of the Bible and the Bible alone should be heard from the pulpit. So there's a position out there. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you, maybe you hold it. Uh, I did at one time. 
uh, that says that Scripture alone, without the interference of um, magisterial authorities. Uh, This is a bit of an overstatement, perhaps, of the non-Catholic Protestant position, we'll call it, Ellen's, that is. It's a bit of a caricature, although she herself said it. It's an extreme position that would put every pastor and homilist out of work, at least on Sunday mornings, in Protestant churches, for if her advice were taken, the pastor would stand up, read the scripture, and sit back down. But that's not what happens. In my old church, anyway, we heard a 45-minute homily. You think you're, you're struggling at 9, 10 minutes in a Catholic mass. Oh, 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 you don't know. 45 minutes at least, or else we dock the pay. Because we want to hear from the word. We want to hear the preaching because that's what the pastor's paid for. We don't have the sacraments. So how are you going to use your time well? Well, we want to hear good, solid teaching. Okay? Every word explained in the text. Give, it to, give, it, give, give me the details. Um, but there's a lot of elaboration that goes on in a non-Catholic Protestant homily. right? So it's not just the words of the Bible and the Bible alone, even in a Protestant setting. Or R.C. Sproul, Robert Charles Sproul, is um, very famous, not with us anymore, in 2017, I guess. His position, representative of the Protestant position, that the Bible alone is the only authority that can bind the conscience of a person, absolutely, because it is the only authority that carries with it the intrinsic authority of God himself. Now, we've just read from the Bible a few examples of places where that divine authority is transmitted to other persons, at least, the apostles, the disciples, if not also to the scriptures. But, um, but in fact, we don't have a, a very clear presentation in the Bible of a moment where divine authority goes from, say, Jesus to a text. We have gesturing toward the text as a reliable witness, but there's no sense in the text that somehow in this gesturing, there's this zapping that happens such that the text now has this divine authority. No, but we do have Jesus himself saying to people, all authorities that I have is given to you. I I grant you the power, the authority to do these things. So there's there's a conflict here in what Sproul is saying and what we see the Bible itself to be saying. And then finally, a recent book by Matthew Barrett, uh, just shows you know publications are still coming out from the non-Catholic side of the of the Tiber. God's word alone, the authority of Scripture. Uh, God's word alone, that is the authority of Scripture. Um, yeah, and and uh, he's an associate professor over at, in Kansas City, I guess. I don't know if he's still there, but this is a this is a major sticking point, um, a point of disagreement between. Catholics and non-Catholics. So let's understand the position accurately and fairly with no caricatures or poking fun or anything. Uh, I was a Protestant once, and so I, I think I, I, can, I can explain it fairly well and fairly. It's not, let's be sure, that Protestants disbelieve in any form of authority or spokesperson other than sacred scripture. So Ellen's not quite right in the first quote above. I mean, she's overstating it. There are pastors, there are biblical scholars and theologians, there are Sunday school teachers, Bible study or home group leaders, writers of hymns and popular Christian songs. These are all 
sources of authority in one way or another. So it's not that the Bible is the only authority, nor is it that Protestants have no or believe they have no extra-biblical traditions. That means outside-the-Bible traditions to which they adhere, to which they stick. For example, prayers they pray that aren't found in the Bible, or songs that they sing that aren't found in the Bible, or the number and identity of biblical books. Protestants hold to a 66-book canon. But in the scriptures themselves, in those 66 books, you'll find no record. You'll look in vain for a record of which books should be included. So the idea that there should be 66 books and no other books is an outside-the-Bible tradition that Protestants hold to. Um, where was I? Number nine, oh yeah, interpretations about biblical texts that aren't provided by the biblical texts themselves. For example, church structure, how a church should be governed, how many and which ministerial offices there should be. Are there priests and deacons and elders and, uh, or not? Or should there be deaconesses <laughs> or not? This kind of thing. The meaning of different individual texts, like this is my body. Or the meaning and significance of baptism. Does it do a work of salvation for you or not? Is it just a sign or is it a real sacramental reality? You know, these, these are points of disagreement and a whole range of disagreements within non-Catholic but they each have their traditions of how they understand these things. These are traditions. So they have them, and they know they have them. And that doesn't contradict their Bible alone paradigm, in my mind, for the following reasons. This is letter C. The phrase, the Bible alone, is actually shorthand for a longer sentence. The real sentence is, the Bible alone is the final arbiter, the final judge, or truth teller, or decider on matters of faith and morals. So let's not make fun or, 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 or uh, caricature, paint a, paint a false picture of the non-Catholic position. It's more robust and more formidable than we might, um, than, than a lot of Catholics want to admit. The Bible alone is the final decider on matters of faith and morals. There are other authorities, pastors, scholars, songwriters, <coughs> Bible study leaders, but the Bible is understood to function as a miracle, the miraculous word of God, which it is, we Catholics agree, capable of providing on its own, here's where we start to part ways, a definitive verdict that cuts through interpretive disagreements. This it nowhere claims for itself and is nowhere given to do by Jesus or anyone else. Okay? Here's a text that sometimes we point to as non-Catholics. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Cutting through joints and marrow? You betcha. It's very incisive. When you read the Bible prayerfully, you can have a deep, uh, moment, moment, many deep moments of conviction. And whatever that means. Whatever it means by cutting through joints and marrow. But cutting through a disagreement between two Christians and determining the extent of what it means on its own? No, it, it can't do that. We need a living, authoritative voice to help us when those uh, moments of contention arise to tell us which interpretation is orthodox and which is not, which is correct and which is incorrect. 
This then brings us to what we call, I'm gonna call the perspicuity thesis. Sorry, there are lots of big words and that's off-putting, but this is the way we talk about it in, uh, among people who study these things out. So let me define what I mean by perspicuity. Something that's perspicuous is something that's obvious. <laughs> that's the easiest way to, to say it. So perspicuity means obviousness. When we, when we talk about perspicuity in relation to the Bible, we're talking about the Bible's ability to make clear what it means. Or even, I like the word obvious, to make obvious what it means. So the perspicuity thesis that's held by non-Catholics is that we don't need some live human interpreter to help us with this, because the Bible alone is capable, if we just study it better, if we just learn Hebrew and Greek, if we just read enough commentaries and, and consult enough theologians, it will make its own meaning clear. I mean, there's an irony in even the way I'm describing that because we're talking about all these additional educational sources, the language teachers, the commentator writers, you know, all of a sudden, we're, we're already beyond the Bible alone. But there's a belief that the Bible is capable, miraculous as it is, we all agree, Catholics and Protestants unite, it's a miraculous thing, this thing. But whether it was ever given to make itself perspicuous is the point of contention. Here's why it's unworkable. Here's why it doesn't work. In the context of a true disagreement, you ever hear two people arguing about something and you think to yourself, I don't think they're actually disagreeing just yet. I think they're just talking past each other. This happens so often, right? Especially online. Okay. Let's say we found a moment of true disagreement where they're actually contradicting each other. Say about the meaning of a text. And they can't both be right because their interpretations directly oppose each other, okay? In that case, appeals to other non-authorized human authorities, so we're talking about scholars or commentaries, books, whatever, those are always questionable. They can always be questioned precisely because they and not the scriptures would then be functioning as the final authorities. So if your position, don't turn the page just yet, if your position is that the Bible is capable somehow on its own of cutting through the disagreement and making its own meaning clear, as soon as you consult somebody else when you can't figure it out, well, now you're resorting to a non-authorized authority. And at some point you have to shelve that and go back, but you can't because then you're in a, you're in a uh, catch-22, right? So that's, that's, that's the first challenge or problem for the perspicuity thesis. Okay, let me, let me say I don't consult any other authorities, and I just pray to the Holy Spirit to make it clear to me which interpretation is right. Is it really Jesus' body, or is he just using a metaphor? This is my body, this is my blood. Does baptism really save you? Does it wipe the slate clean? Or is it just a symbol, a sign, really? Should we go to, to another man to confess our sins? Why is that necessary? Can I just say sorry to God, you know, and not worry about other people? This kind of thing. These are interpretive issues. If I ask the Holy Spirit, the problem is my opponent over against me, the one who disagrees with my interpretation, is doing the same thing. And he or she is saying, oh, I prayed to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit made it clear to me that my interpretation is correct and yours is wrong. And I can say the same thing. I did. I also. And obviously the Holy Spirit can't be divided. 
This is what happened in the early church. Lots of appeals to the Holy... Every heretic appealed to the Holy Spirit to shore up his or her false interpretation. So that didn't work. Therefore, number three, unless there is... we We kind of get shoved into this situation. And here's the situation. Unless there is some divinely protected, (coughs) ongoing magisterial authority that is able to determine for the faithful what is orthodox, what's right, what's correct, and what is not, in at least certain cases, then nothing about the faith can be known with certainty. That's a big, bold claim. And I believe every word of it. This is the philosophical truth that pushed me finally into the Catholic Church. I agree with every other Christian that there are certain things that we can know about the faith. But if that's true, there's only, there, there has to be some divinely protected from error, some divine reality that's protecting some human organism from making a mistake when that human organism specifies to me, this is true, and this, this, is, this is how you get through your interpretive disagreement. Here's what's true and here's what's not. You have to have it, or else everything can be questioned and nothing can be known for sure. Why is the perspicuity thesis unbiblical? I think you could probably answer that yourselves right now. Because the Bible nowhere claims for itself to be able to make its own meaning apparent in every situation. Why is the perspicuity... So that was Luther. Luther loved to say... Or is it Calvin, Dad? I'm getting it confused. Um, The Bible is its own interpreter, and it will make itself plain. I mean, he had in a song, I think. Uh, I think think it was... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, God moves in a mysterious way. William Calvin. Oh, okay. But he gets it from Luther or Calvin, I thought. Calvin's probably. Okay. Scripture is its own interpreter, and God will make it plain or something like that. Well, as Catholics, we would agree uh, with the second part of that. God will make it plain. He likes to use human people that he authorizes to help with that. (laughs) Certainly, God will make it plain. Just maybe not the way that you want him to. Why it's unhistorical, the perspicuity thesis. Let's go way, way, way back at the very beginning. The very first Christians, they didn't determine which persons were Christ's apostles by seeing who taught what they themselves thought must have been Christ's gospel. So they didn't start out with the book and say, okay, here's the right interpretation. We've, we've uh, come up with the best, uh, most scholarly, most academically. Uh, ortho. And now let's go and figure out who agrees with us, and those people will be the true emissaries of God. No, that's not how they did it. They determined what Christ's gospel was in the first place by finding those whom Christ had sent, those that Christ had given authority and then listening to their teaching. And after they heard their teaching, then they say, oh, that's how we should understand the gospel. And you guys would know. (laughs) And the second generation of Christians didn't determine which persons were the bishops. Now we have bishops, see? By determining who believed and taught what they themselves thought was Christ's gospel, but rather by finding those whom the apostles had authorized and sent, and then listening to their teaching. So they're, they're following a bloodline of the passing of authority. And actually, do you know what the difference between continuity and contiguity is with a G? Have you heard this before? Continuity is 
one thing transferring from one place to the next, and, it, and you can see if you can track the similarity. Contiguity is the same idea, but through physical contact. So we sometimes talk about the contiguous United States. What would those be? The, the lower 48. Yeah. Whereas Hawaii and Alaska aren't contiguous. Right? Why? Because the lower 48 are touching each other. Okay, so we have continuity of content in the passing on of the teaching that Jesus. But we also have contiguity of authority. Jesus touches his apostles. They authorize the next set of bishops through the laying on of hands. So the church is not just a spiritual reality with the right ideas about things. It's a physical reality that passes on content, concepts, and physical. So Father Worth was touched by someone who was touched, by someone who was touched, by someone who was touched, by an apostle who was touched by Jesus. So right here among us, we have somebody who carries the touching that goes all the way back to Jesus. That's massive. So let's carry on with the quote. I think I interrupted myself. So they found those who, um, whom the apostles had authorized and sent, and they, they listened to their teaching. And the third generation of Christians did the same and so on. That's the way, the way Christ set up the church. So here's the italicized bit. There was never a time when the bishop said, okay, now we've got the New Testament. It's been written and the canon's been settled. We're going to change the way we do things around here. From now on, the rightful bishops are no longer to be determined by listening to those whom we ordain in sacramental succession from the apostles, but instead by finding those who agree with your own interpretation of Scripture. No, that just never happened. And this is a massive hurdle for many non-Catholics to get over. It was for us, because we're Bible guys. We know, we have all the commentaries. We know the languages. We can go right back into the origins and look at it all. And, and so to, to, to come to find out that actually the way you know what a passage means best anyway is by consulting the tradition of the church and the way that it has been nourished by those texts throughout the ages. And if your interpretation conflicts with that one, then be very, very careful because you're stepping out of bounds, you see? So we know what the gospel is. We know what texts mean by listening carefully to those who are authorized, who have passed that on to us. Therefore, number three, the church recognizes. So why we believe in the Bible? Because we can connect the dots to from Jesus' divinity to his gesturing toward the Bible as a reliable witness. Why we don't believe in the Bible alone? Well, because Jesus and the Bible are both seen to be gesturing to other authorities beyond the Bible itself for us. Therefore, we recognize two means by which we have access to the Son and thereby to the triune God, two ways or modes of transmission that is passing on in which divine revelation comes to us throughout the ages so that we might know God personally and fully. We have sacred scripture, the Bible, the word of God as scripted, or and it's inspired. It's Holy Spirit delivered, Father, we're against Revelation. And we have sacred tradition, we call it. The word of God as unscripted, lived reality and preserved memory. That also is revelation. We call it sacred scripture because it's from God and not mere humans through the Holy Spirit. 
And we call it sacred scripture because it's written, not merely lived and spoken. Conversely, we call it sacred tradition because it's from God and not mere humans. It's not some man-made invention, which is often the critique or the, the challenge. Oh, you Catholics and all your traditions, uh, all the customs that you do, those are just man-made inventions. No, we uh, don't see it that way. We believe it's from God and not merely from humans. And we call it sacred tradition because it's something handed down, which is the meaning of the Greek uh, paradasis, tradition, from Jesus and the Holy Spirit through the apostles. I might even, maybe we should write that differently. From Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to the apostles, and then subsequently to us. Not merely made up or invented and therefore subject to human error. It's divinely protected from error. And we trust both of these modes. Because again, we hold that they are from God. We believe in the existence of God for various philosophical reasons. That's an act of reason. We believe Jesus of Nazareth is an actual historical person who is the revelation of God on the basis of various motives of credibility, right? That's an act of faith that's corroborated by reason. Notice carefully, though, our act of faith is not of blind faith, or sometimes what we call fideism, which is the belief that knowledge, being able to know a thing is the case, depends on prior faith. You've got to take a leap of faith, we say, before you can know for certain. That's not what Catholics believe. That's what fideists believe. But that's not what we Catholics believe. We believe that it's a, it is an act of faith, but standing behind that decision to have faith are various reasonable motives that motivate us to do that. I have... Some additional notes on the relationship between scripture and tradition as revelation. We can read through a few of them together, but I want to pause here and just ask if there's anything I've said that's unclear so far that could be tidied up. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.